Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. My name is Jill and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Today I got to sit down with one of my good friends, Kelsey, who is a master's student at UNB in Fredericton. I loved getting to sit down and have a conversation with Kelsey about what she does and how it kind of relates back into marine science. So today we are here with my friend Kelsey. Hi Kelsey. Hello. How are you doing today? I am wonderful. It is a beautiful Friday it in is. New Brunswick and you drove here which is I incredible. Did. Got to come hang out with you. Now we're here together to talk. So yes. I met Kelsey when I first started my undergrad at UNB in St. John. And you were one of my first friends there that I knew was kind of on the same path as me like with the marine science. So it was kind of cool to have someone like you to look up to. Aww. Not that much older than me but. No, no, not much at all. <laughs> So can you just give us a brief introduction to like who you are and what you do? Yes. So my name's Kelsey. Um, I'm originally from Vancouver, moved out to the East Coast about six years ago, and I love it. I do not plan on leaving anytime <laughs> soon. Love it here. Um, I actually started out in earth sciences. So my undergrad degree and where we met um, at UMB SJ, I started off in earth sciences, came to UMB Fredericton, finished earth sciences, um, predominantly in rocks and hard rock geology. And then I kind of took a huge right turn in my honors thesis and started working in ocean and atmospheric sciences. Now I'm doing my master's and I'm doing it on ocean currents and paleo-oceanography in the Arctic. That is so cool. And we've talked earlier about this, but like you don't think of rocks when you first think of ocean sciences. They're not the first thing that pops into your head. Usually you're thinking of like biology of like animals and yeah. all that. So rocks is kind of a cool way to take that. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, if you talk to people in geology, they obviously, <laughs> when they think of the ocean, usually first think of like mid-Atlantic Ridge and stuff like that. But yeah, most people in the general public think of like whales and sharks and fish and that kind of side of it. But yeah, your side of it. <laughs> My side. Of your it. side of it. Um, but there's a whole nother world in terms of looking at it through a geologic kind of lens and looking at sediment and sediment cores and that kind of stuff, which is where I come in. So how did you find that? How did you decide that that's kind of the route you wanted to take? Like, where did that come from? Like, what got you started in it? So it's actually kind of, well, it's an interesting story. So I, like I said, was predominantly in hard rock geology. So that's more like volcanoes and, you know, mining and that kind of stuff. And then uh, we had a new professor start, Dr. Audrey Limoges, who's now my supervisor for my master's. So she started and I took one of her classes. It was um, paleontology. And then she also offered like historic geology through the lens of like historic geology was more so environmental and climate change like through time. And I absolutely loved it. And then I was thinking about honors projects and I was kind of going back and forth about what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of people probably struggle with this, but I had too many interests. <laughs> like I diverted in so many different pathways of what I liked and I kind of had to focus on what I was really passionate about. And I really think that ocean and climate science is really important. And so, I approached her about a project and she of course had a project looking at high arctic ecosystems and oceanic regimes and so I did my honors project with her looking at an area called the North Water Polynia which is an area of open water conditions where you'd expect to see sea ice. So because of these open water conditions you have high primary production and it sustains like a really wealthy and diverse food web so there's lots of um, narwhals and belugas and stuff that live in the area and the surrounding communities rely on this open water. So I thought that was super cool because it's pulling from multiple disciplines. You're looking at geology, you're looking at biology, you're looking at historical data, 
and it's all kind of wrapped into one. Yeah, that's so, so I thought cool. That was super cool. So I did that as my honors. And what was funny is the project actually was a master's project. Oh. <laughs> and so she was like, you can do this for your honors and we'll see how it goes kind of thing. And then I loved it and I was like, I'd like to continue this yeah. into my master's. So now I'm working on the same area for my master's. Here you are. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. So I've really grown a love for the Arctic and climate change as a whole. I can imagine. But completely different than what my undergrad was in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really. Wow. Yeah. Big change. Mm -hmm. Hard right. Yeah. There's a very small kind of... Um, bridge I guess when you're looking at sediment cores and analyzing sediment but predominantly what I do doesn't really look at geology at all. Interesting. Earth sciences yes but not geology. Not geology. Just yeah. funny geology was one of my least favorite classes. I only took it because it was either that or physics and I knew I would not do well in physics. And that's such a like shame to me because that's the reality for most first years and I've TA'd many first year earth science courses and everyone's like yeah we're here because we didn't want to take physics and my goal was to try and motivate people to actually love rocks. And I think I, it turned into people kind of like maybe making fun of me a little bit for my absolute <laughs> love for minerals and rocks. But I think it also hopefully inspired a few people to oh, kind yeah. of pursue that pathway. I'm that sure makes me very sad. Well, I think it's your least favorite. I think if I had taken it later on in my degree, I would have actually had like a love for it or like respect for it. But like in your first year, you're like, no, I'm here to do one thing and one thing only. Yeah. And then it is not this. Yeah. And earth sciences as a whole, there's just so much. It's the study of the earth. Like yeah. earth sciences is everything. So that's atmospheric sciences. That's ocean sciences. That's, you know, you could really group biology into it, but we don't really tackle too much of that. Okay. Um, it's like paleontology, stuff like that. And then you have your geology. Yes. And depending on what school you go on, you can focus on certain things more. And UNB happens to focus a lot on kind of hard rock. But now with Dr. Audrey Limoges, we're kind of steering it in a new direction, which is cool. That is so cool. Yeah. So as a young girl, when you were growing up, was this kind of what you pictured for yourself or what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, it's so funny listening to the other podcasts, just listening to the diversity and answers to this question because some people are like, I knew right when I was five years old that I was gonna be a, I was gonna look at whales for the rest of my life or I was gonna look at sharks or whatever. And I started off as many young girls do, wanting to be a dolphin trainer. <laughs> it's where we all started. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I um, I think it was Flipper. Yep. Flipper. That's what was, got me. Yeah. Flipper was that movie where everybody watched it and you were like, I want to be with these creatures all the time. The scene where the hammerhead's coming to get him, I had, I always had to leave the room because I was too yeah. scared because I loved the shark, but I didn't want anything to get hurt. And like, yeah. just, that's what got me into it too. Yeah. Well, we are definitely the same on that level. I love so. It. Um, yeah, so I started off like really loving dolphins and like really loving like the ocean in general. And then I started university and biology personally, it's funny now because I'm more biological on that side. I, um, I just didn't really enjoy biology and I was loving geology. I was loving rocks. I was loving them. And it's so funny like saying that because people think I'm super weird when I say that. And it <laughs> becomes a big like point of jokes in the many aspects of my life. But um, I started off loving geology and I went through and I really had a passion for it um and then you know I switched back yeah you just that hard right again yeah you just, just switched back but like it's funny because now if I were to tell my younger self it's like don't worry it's gonna be a very what's I guess it's like very snaky road of <laughs> going back and forth and around and looping and it's not like one from point a to point b it's gonna be a very kind of circular but it all comes back around. But it all comes full circle. So I'm not a dolphin trainer, but I do work with ocean sciences. And 
I still have that appreciation and love. But yeah, originally, very much wanted to be a dolphin trainer. I love that. Yeah. I absolutely love that. That's yeah. so funny. Like, dolphins, rocks, biological sciences. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people maybe do have that problem where, you, like, if you are in sciences, I can only speak to that really, um, is you have this passion for so many different things like I I'm sure you have it too where like although you love whales there's so many other things that you probably find super Absolutely. interesting and super relevant and sometimes areas where you really need there needs to be a lot of research done so trying to pick one thing can like, be impossible uh, I love this but I love this but I also yeah. love this and this is so cool too and it's just it's so many cool options that you just you're not gonna go you're not gonna make the wrong decision yeah but it's just like are you gonna make the right one and you will see that as you go forward too you'll be like oh, even even like now in masters it's like you start one project you find something really cool and you're like I want to continue with this but you have to like redirect your brain that you have to finish the thing that you started <laughs> but I think that's a good place to be yeah. like being curious and wanting to Learn. constantly be exploring like that's what we need in science mm -hmm. and that's what we need in people who are in academia is constantly like pushing those boundaries and those boundaries being pushed because of curiosity. Absolutely. So I think that that's, I, I keep telling myself that, <laughs> that is the way to be. So I'm constantly driven by curiosity, which is the best way to be. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And you've also had your fair share of like, just interactions with the water, not just with your work, but you worked not just with your masters, but you worked in St. Andrews the same time I was when yes. I was working on my whale watching boat you were doing kayak tours yeah. so tell us about that how'd you get how'd you find that what made you want to do that so that was another big facet of my life is like jumping into things <laughs> so I actually had a friend who told me that they were hiring for kayak tours in St. Andrews and I applied on a whim because I had kayaked in BC a little bit um and anyway I ended up getting the job and so I did it for two summers lived in St. Andrews for two summers and um yeah I would just take people on kayak tours for those of you who know the region it was around Navy Island um, and then our big end of the year paddle, we'd paddle from St. Andrews, like the town, out to Campobello. That's a big paddle. That is a big paddle. Like on my boat, when we're going like 12 knots, give or take, that takes us 20 minutes. Yeah. So like that yeah. would take you guys a couple hours. That's wild. Yeah. Um, that's why we wait till the end of the summer yeah, because you have to train and you have to kind of be in shape and you have to know what you're doing and yeah. all of that. Um, but yeah, so what we would do is you go around Navy and um, you'd see like a lot of seals and that kind of stuff, but you'd also see, I don't know for sure if we saw it, but I'm going to say that we did because it, it, I'm pretty sure something jumped. We either saw some sort of whale or like porpoise, porpoise. or potentially shark breach right where all the boats are. So like not even like out in the deep water, like no. where it gets quite shallow because yeah. the tides are so crazy. So anyway, we saw that um, and I've paddled with lots of whales. That would be an unreal experience because it's so cool just seeing them on the boat and like I've been yeah. on a pretty small zodiac, but like a kayak, like there's not much between you and the water no. there. So. And they're very thin kayaks because they're sea kayaks, right? Yeah. So you want to be as Light. agile as yeah. you possibly can be. Um, so yeah, so we were paddling with some finbacks. Oh my and word. That yeah. like finbacks are the second largest animal in the entire world. Yeah. So like. I don't think anything could make you feel more insignificant than yeah. that. Like, There's something quite... Because here's the thing, too. When you do these paddles, you're looking at the weather. And you're trying to... If there's winds, you can still go because your kayak can stay stable and all yeah. of that. But you try and plan, especially when you're on the open water in the Bay of Fundy, you're trying to plan for the best conditions possible. So in our case, it was sunset. 
there was like a little bit of a swell so you were kind of like moving through the water and bobbing up and down and you have these giant mammals popping up next oh. to you it was the most incredible thing like i i can't even i think i would actually ball my eyes yeah out. i yeah. Pretty, have a pretty bad habit of crying on the boat just when we see a whale yeah because i love them so much so to be able to experience that would just be i don't think i could handle it i don't i think that would i'd have to that would be the end it's definitely a very surreal moment it can in your mind if you think about it too much get a little bit scary of like what's underneath of you yeah and even thinking about like sharks in the area oh yeah and sharks that are underneath you and they're bigger than your kayak but at the same time like you have to live your life and you have to enjoy it and you know what's gonna happen as we learned from the last podcast sharks aren't that bad they're not that scary so um i don't think besides that one breach which a customer was the one who said it was a shark so take that for what it is yeah um i haven't seen any really no only whales and porpoises and seals i think i've only seen two sharks in my three years out on the water and one of them was a basking shark which doesn't have any teeth like Mm -hmm. it's just a filter feeder and it was like a glimpse of it and i had to double check with someone else that someone else saw because i was like is this a fever dream or like am i just wanting to see it and then we saw one breach like pretty far away from us yeah and then one we just saw the fin like they're not something you see every day so the fact that you might have seen one is insane like so cool yeah well i mean for two summers like i'd be on the water for anywhere between four to eight hours of the day so i mean likely that maybe i could have maybe seen one but like the most we usually we just saw porpoises and you know obviously geographically the way that the the way that St. Andrews and the Passamaquoddy Bay and then Bay of Fundy is set up, you don't see many whales within Passamaquoddy. We saw mm. some paddling out, and I think it wasn't you guys. It wasn't your boat. Um, I don't know who it was. I don't even know if it was one of the whale watching companies, but they saw these whales like right outside of Deer Island, and they were in Passamaquoddy Bay, and we were paddling back, and they were like right beside our boat too, and we were coming back from our trip, so it was like double the whales. Like This double is incredible. Whale. So, you know, I think that that really made me develop even more of an appreciation. Absolutely. I mean, I've always been in love with the water, like, my whole life, so. It's just, like, that unreal experience that you're, like, you can't get this anywhere else. Yeah. At all. Yeah, it's two summers that I would not trade the world for. Like, they were incredible. And anybody who hasn't been to St. Andrews that's in New Brunswick needs to spend a lot of time. At least a week there. Like, people are like, oh, we're just here for the weekend. I'm like, nope, not enough time. Yeah. Because you've got to hit the aquarium. You've got to go out on at least one whale watching tour. Yeah. Maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. I don't yeah. know. I want to go on them all. Yeah, go on as many as you possibly can. You just gotta, and there's like so many other things to explore in San Andreas. Like yeah. it's the, my favorite place in New Brunswick. It's a perfect town. It is. It really is. And yeah. like living there when you're in your twenties is the best. Yeah. Everybody who's on the water is usually there. Yep. And everybody's talking about what they saw that day, what they didn't see, what the conditions were like, everything, mm-hmm. everything. Like, I think, actually, now that I think about it, what's really funny about, of, out of everything that I've seen, everything on the water, we saw a deer swimming from Maine <laughs> to Navy Island. That is hilarious. And, and, of course, we had, like, a little kid with us, and he thought it was a shark. And I was like, no, it's, it's, it's a deer. <laughs> How do you explain to a little kid that, yeah, no, this thing that you're seeing in the ocean, it's a deer. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So now they're going to be like, oh, well, deer live in the ocean. Yeah. You know what though but kids are so curious and they're like deer can swim that far and i was like well apparently like i guess they must i didn't know that 
But as you know, there's a ton of deer in St. Andrews, so like to see one in the water, I'm not like, exactly another shocked. one. Yeah, yeah. I learned the other day that one of the top predator of moose is an orca, because moose will dive down. I think like I don't want to quote this, but like maybe 20 feet. Oh really? To get seagrass, and the orcas will just like, here's lunch. Grab them. Yeah, isn't that huh. like? unreal to me the water is so cool yeah and that just goes like full circle as to why so many people study the ocean because there's things like who would have thought that moose dive to eat seagrass and yeah like, and orcas eat them like there's just so many things out there like between the land and the water those interactions and then atmosphere in the water and then just what's going on in the ocean as a whole like there's just it's such a unknown mysterious place to think that we only know about 1% of it yeah. is just, like, mind-blowing. Because if you think about, like, how much we know, or, like, it feels like we know so much, and they're like, no, we've only explored, like, less than 1%. You're like, what do you mean? Yeah. What is, how? Yeah. Like, I want to know what's down there. I want to know what else is going on. Yeah. And I want everyone else to want to know that, too, because then we're going to have this little army of, like, young children sciences coming up. Yeah. And, wanting to learn everything which is the best yeah there's so much left on unexplored oh, i'm so excited to figure it all out i know i know even um so this summer i was on a research vessel yes um in nunavut and even just like mapping the coastline in canada is something that still needs to be explored like the maps that are used are and charts aren't fully updated for the arctic just because it's so it's explored, but it's unexplored as well yeah. in terms of the coastline. And the coastline changes, and with rising sea levels, it's going to change as well. And with sea ice melt and all of that. But, like, the coastlines aren't even fully known. Just to put into perspective, like, how little is really known. So you're telling me, when I, like, look at a map of Canada, all those little islands up there and that, that could be kind of wrong? Yes. Yes and no. <laughs> More so, like, the depth of the water. And, yes, a little bit of the, the like, actual, actual coastline. coastline. So there's an article... Um, on Arctic Focus and it's written and there's actually a picture of like the chart that we used on the boat and it shows us on land but then the radar is showing us at like a depth of depth of like 50 meters that's yeah insane yeah so there's a lot left to learn to learn and to map and to so that I, I a lot of people don't know that wow and especially because of shipping routes and stuff it's yeah. gonna be important to know what depth and stuff we're definitely at. absolutely so, yeah it's, it's very interesting and there's a lot left to learn <sighs> so cool for so many different areas too like a lot of people think when you think of oceans you think of biology and you think that there's a lot that isn't known about biology and that is 100 percent true absolutely but there's so many other facets of things that can be explored oh yeah. you don't have to just be a biologist if you love oceans and you love you know working with the water that is something that um I was just talking to Kim Davies about and she was like I knew I loved the oceans but I started doing marine biology and it wasn't for me like yeah. she realized she kind of hated it and then mm -hmm. she found oceanography and was like oh yeah this is what I like whereas like I talk about oceanography and I'm like okay where are the whales yeah I would like those back now and like yeah. I'm very biology focused and I have a biology brain yeah so like that stuff just makes fun of, or makes sense to me yeah and it's fun to me whereas this stuff I'm like okay I see how other people appreciate it mm -hmm. I appreciate it not my thing yeah but it's your thing which yeah. is so cool yeah so that research vessel you were on this summer what were you doing out there yeah so it's kind of similar to the general theme of, of my master's which is looking at microfossils in sediment that are preserved in sediment. Um, so my job on the research vessel, um, it was the research vessel William Kennedy, a very cute little boat, um, <laughs> pretty small, 
uh, an old crab fishing vessel that was converted into a research vessel. And our job was just to collect sediment cores and we're trying to figure out uh, the oceanic conditions and how things have changed. Um, similar to my area of study, the North Water Polynia. So again, an area of open water in a region where you would expect sea ice cover. Um, around Southampton Island, which is the island we were working around in Nunavut, um, there's polynias that form. So we want to know why they form, how they form, what the biological community's yeah. response is to changes in the formation, and what the community looks like as a whole. That's so, super cool. Yeah, so my job was collecting mud. <laughs> Such a fun job. Yeah, which some people would be like, that's weird. Why are you collecting mud? But for me, it's you like... You can learn so much from it. Yeah, people don't realize how much is actually preserved in the sediment and how much it can tell us about oh, yeah. past environments. And that's kind of my focus, is looking at past looking at the changes in the past and how we can use those changes in the past to predict what might happen in the future and see you know how has the system responded to certain climatic changes certain atmospheric changes oceanic changes and what can that tell us about moving forward into the future so when you're out there and you're collecting those sediment samples mm -hmm. how do you do it because it's deep water obviously you're not just scooping down so how do you do it you'd be surprised oh so um, you're not scooping down, but you are scooping <laughs> to okay. an extent. So um, it really depends on your terrain and yes. what you're looking at and how much knowledge you have about um, what is at the bottom of the ocean. So first, usually what you do is you take um, like basically like a little, it kind of grabs sediment and it just grabs like a little bit. And you first deploy that, we call it a ponar. And basically what it does is it grabs like basically a handful of sediment. Okay. And so you start with that because sometimes there is no sediment. It's just straight rock. Good. So you start with that and that would, it would be, we would call that a surface sample. Um, and if you get that, then you move up to what's called a box core. Box core is about 30 centimeters worth of sediment that you can collect. Okay. And basically the way it works is it's got like a triggering mechanism. So when it hits the ground, these two kind of clamps shut underneath the bottom of the box core. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it basically triggers and it shuts the bottom of it off and you can have up to 30 centimeters of sediment and then you stick tubes into it to collect like an actual core okay cool. and the reason why you don't want to start with the box core if it's just straight rock at the bottom is because you can damage the box core and yeah etc um, and then the next step up is a gravity core okay and so we used a gravity core it has weights on it and as the name suggests the gravity is what helps drive it into the sediment so when you know you have a significant amount of sediment like the box core comes up with a lot you will deploy the gravity core. And essentially the weights that are on it drive it into the sediment and you pull it back up and you have tubes inside that contain your sediment core. Cool. And keep it preserved like in chronological order, like doesn't screw Shift up the- Shift it up, yeah. Yeah, doesn't the order. Shake it up yeah. and move it. Cool. Yeah. yeah, so we used all three, because uh, some areas you can only get like a couple centimeters of sediment and then some areas you can get like actual gravity cores. Yeah four lengths worth of sediment. So yeah, cool. we collected, um, this trip was the first circumnavigation around Southampton Island. So we were successfully able to go around the entire island, um, which is super exciting. That's really interesting. Yeah, so I was on the second leg, so I didn't go around the whole island, but I went around a part of it. Um, the problem with working in the Arctic, first of all, is sea ice. So our vessel isn't an icebreaker. So sea ice, you have to navigate around it or else it's gonna damage your vessel. Yeah. Um, so we got lucky in the terms of the amount of sea ice that was present around Southampton. Um, and then also just like the weather. Yeah. You can have really bad weather. You can have really bad storms. You can have rough waters. We, we had very rough waters at some point. Um, and that can 
a tribute to how much samples you collect and yeah. if you can actually make it around the island and that kind of stuff. So yeah, so we made it around the whole island. We've collected samples around the island. There are different groups working on different things. Um, on a research vessel, time is money. So you're trying to like collect as much as you can in a very short amount of time for many different projects. Yeah. So more than just sediment collection was going on. We were deploying phytoplankton nets, um, zooplankton nets. We had a team of divers that was looking at the kelp communities. So a lot was going on. Yeah, it's yeah. a busy boat. Yeah, water samples to look at um, the water. pH and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, composition of the water column and all that at different depths. And yeah, there's a lot going on. And, you know, it was great because we had our crew was from PEI. They were awesome. They were so much fun. And they were very passionate about us collecting samples. Yeah. Which is what you want in a crew. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, and then everybody on the boat, we had such a great rapport. Like, everybody was amazing. We had so much yeah. fun together. Because it's important to have fun as well, right? Yeah, like you're, you're not just there to do work. You're there to, like, learn. And yeah. I yeah. don't want to say, like, make friends. But, like, of course, make to, friends. You need to have a good relationship with the yeah. people you're working with. Yeah. Because it's just going to make your work smoother. Yeah, that, and that's exactly it. Is like, everybody was willing to help everybody out. Everybody was there and ready just in case someone needed something or whatever and everybody was very passionate about everybody getting their data collected and getting their samples collected and helping each other out and on top of it like having a good rapport and like interacting with everyone yeah. really well and so like two weeks I was on for two weeks it flew by oh I can imagine it flew by and it was so sad leaving and you know but it was incredible and then on top of all of that what we're also really passionate about in our research group and you know the people on our ship and then on my colleague Josh Evans went on the Amundsen which went to like northern Greenland which is where I work um for my master's we're really passionate and think it's like the utmost importance to work with the local communities because yes. it's where they live and where they know first of all the most and it's their community yeah so on our boat we had um a guide with us on each leg so they helped with like sample collection they helped with navigation and like wildlife watch so watching out for polar bears because we saw a lot of polar bears which we can also talk about that's so cool um and then we also had community visits so when we were docked um in coral harbor and Malyat, we had the local communities come onto the research vessel we had the schools come on and they got to learn about how we collect samples and what we're doing and how we're doing it um so that was really awesome we got to engage with everybody up there so cool because it's really important to like interact with them and include them in this so they mm -hmm. know that it's going to benefit them and isn't something that's going to be like damaging what's around them and stuff well, like that. Like, exactly. And and it's, you know, making sure that they're the ones who have been living there. They've been observing. They know what's going on. We care about their space too. And so it's just working together like anything. It's just working yeah. with everybody involved and making sure everybody's a part of the process. So that was great. Yeah. So it was an awesome experience and very humbling to be on the ocean in the middle of very rough waters and just being at the mercy kind of, of yep i mean you're being safe obviously but being in this powerful you don't body you like, of water you like in quotes have control but really yeah you don't you're it's yeah. all the ocean it was just the first time i ever felt that i remember being like oh this is yeah this, this is, is very powerful. powerful thing yeah yeah being in the o open ocean is a little bit different than being out just in the bay of fun yeah which is i mean even still we were around an island so we were quite close to the yeah. island and all of that and our crew was amazing and very very diligent about our safety and checking the weather and making sure we were never going to be in a bad storm or anything like that um but you know at the same time 
you really feel it when you're in big swells and you're yep. there, like rocking with the boat, the and belly rollers, yeah, like the, yeah. and it's inevitable that you're gonna get seasick. It's inevitable. <laughs> so knock on wood, I haven't yet. I haven't gotten seasick <sighs> ever. I say that, and next time I go on a boat, I'm gonna be yarfing. But yeah, I um I got it bad once. Oh, which no. was not too bad like the first bit that we were on it was like glass it was the most amazing weather they've never had weather like it <laughs> and course. which was wonderful but then about halfway through we had a really bad day oh, and I have no. a video of it and I show people and they're like oh my goodness like how did you do that and you have no choice you're, you're out there yeah you can't just jump off you're yeah just gotta weather it yeah exactly but again it's a humbling experience the yeah. thing is is you get more land sick than you do seasick yeah and people don't think about that but when you're on, what happens is, is your body gets its equilibrium yeah. on the boat. So you're used to moving around and having everything kind of move around. And then when you get off, it's not, people think it's immediate when you get off that you're going to start spinning, but it happens actually like a couple days later. Yeah. So we were in Winnipeg and, um, cause you fly out of Winnipeg to Nunavut mm -hmm. and we were in Winnipeg and I felt it the second day we were actually in a coffee shop, like working while waiting for our flight to go yeah. back to New Brunswick. And I was sitting there working on a very solid desk and everything started spinning. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness. And then you kind of feel like you're actually like riding waves and big waves. And then it goes away for a couple minutes and then it comes back. And it usually lasts, like for me, it lasted a couple days yeah. and eventually kind of tapered off. But the first few days I was like, I'm fine. I'm on solid ground. I feel good. Yeah, you're solid. And then yeah. it just kind of hits. Our, mine was, I always felt it like we had a rough day out on the water when we were out for like a 12 hour like shift. I'd come back in and I'd go and like I'd be fine walking home and everything and I'd lay down and the second I lay down I'm like this is a waterbed I'm moving yeah. like it's such a weird feeling to know that you're on solid ground it's kind of like the spins yeah it's and that the other thing too is the sound like yeah. when, when we got to Winnipeg it everything was so quiet because during the night usually they'll have like at least on our ship someone was driving to the next location so you're always kind of moving and the engine's always on and whatever so when the engine stops you usually would wake up on the boat to be like why is it so quiet like what's yeah. going on and then trying to sleep after getting off the boat being on solid ground and it being dead silent it's like an eerie silence because yep. you're so used to like background noise so that was the other big adjustment getting off the boat i can imagine yeah so you saw polar bears that's yes. so cool i've always wanted to see one yes well, how cool is it like the coolest it is well, there's many firsts for what I saw when I was up there, but yes, polar bears. So, um, on Southampton Island, we were kind of close to the island and someone saw one polar bear. It was like on a piece of ice, <laughs> which was super cute. And then someone like looked out and they're like, oh, there's a couple polar bears feeding on something on land. So we get out the binoculars when we're looking and then someone else sees another one and then another one and then another one. And I think we counted, depending who you ask, <laughs> depending between 27 to 34 depending who you ask that's a lot of polar bears yeah yeah that's so cool yeah so they were all over like um so there was a beach and then there were some rocks so some were on the rocks a couple were on the beach eating like a walrus or something and then there was a bunch in like the back kind of rocky mountainous hilly area and you kept looking around and seeing all of them and i, I just thought it was so interesting that there were so many so close to each other because yeah. i always thought of them as kind of being more solitary like, solitary but also like a little bit territorial kind yeah. of like don't come near me and my family like you yeah. stay away that's so cool yeah so there was a ton and they were of course at a safe distance which was really great so we got to just sit there and of course like 
for a good 20 minutes, everything stopped and everybody's yeah. looking. And we hit it at an opportune time where we weren't like at a station sampling. So okay. it was the perfect time. Like I think everybody was eating lunch or something and we were moving to the next station. So we like to stood pause. there and yeah. That is so yeah. cool. And everyone's trying to zoom in on their cameras and has all these blurry photos, but like they were there. That's so cool though. Yeah, it was awesome. What are some of the other firsts you saw? Northern Lights. No way. Yeah, so what people don't, I don't know if people think about is um, the further north you go in, in the Arctic, um, during the summer you have 24 hours of daylight, right? Yeah. Um, so that's why in Iceland they have like the midnight sun because it's right when the sun's setting and then rising again. So they have 24 hours of daylight. Yeah. Um, but where we were was south enough that we still had nighttime. Okay. Um, and so it's kind of, it's actually quite a funny story. So I was in bed. I had my retainer in. <laughs> I had like my face mask stuff on. Anyway, I was going to bed because we had an early station the next morning. And someone comes down and is like rattling my bed, rattling my bed. And they're like, Northern Lights. And I'm like, what? And they're like, the Northern Lights, you can see the Northern Lights. So I, of course I run out of bed. I still got my retainer in. You have to throw on your life jacket and you can go to like the top part of the boat. And the Northern Lights were just like the entire sky was lit up. They were pink, purple, green. And of course, what was really special about it was that it was most of our first time seeing it. Yeah. So all of us are just like looking up at these Northern Lights and crying. Like yeah. tears of beauty and joy and all of that, just seeing the Northern Lights. So... And they move through the sky, which a lot of people don't know. Like, they don't stay stationary. Like, really? they swirl and move. And they're kind of like curtains, almost, in how they move. And cool. they can disappear for a bit and then come back. And, yeah. That is so cool. That's always been on my bucket list. I actually, wow, I'm yeah. so jealous right now. Like, the polar bears, I'm like, oh, cool. But the northern lights. Yeah, they were pretty great. And then we also saw them from the plane on the way back, um, flying from Nunavut to Winnipeg. Oh, my Yeah. God. But so at that point, it's like, I am... Seasoned. They no, they never get old. <laughs> they never get old. It's kind of like seeing a whale, probably for you. Like yeah. it never gets old. The first time, obviously, is very memorable. But like, even the second time we were seeing them from you the plane. Just, wow. Yeah. Oh, man, I think I'm gonna have yeah. to take a trip from Nunavut now. Yeah, you have to, or at least get up to Churchill, yeah. Manitoba, because you'll see them from there too. But, um, yeah, no, the ca the flight crew dimmed all the lights. They're like, ladies and gentlemen, the northern lights are to your left. So we're gonna dim the cabin lights so everyone can see them, and of course everybody's just glued to their windows. Oh my word! Yeah, it was quite incredible. Oh, it sucks if you were on the right hand side of the plane, yeah, but yeah, that was oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, it was quite, quite beautiful and something that I definitely want to see again, and I definitely think everybody should experience. Yeah, I think they're so beautiful. Like the fact that that can happen, and that it's like a natural thing. Like, yeah, so cool. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. World. Me too. It's quite, yeah, this, the ship in total was a very special experience. Yeah. And, you know, many firsts. We saw walruses, was seasick, like many yeah. things happened. And it was just like you're thrown completely out of your comfort zone and you're in this whole new world with all these new people. I was on with my supervisor um, and her husband, who's also does research okay. um, in Arctic science and all of that. So I had both of them, which was really great. But yeah, it was incredible and everybody on the boat was awesome and it was just perfect i love that yeah i love it all yeah i'm excited to see what's done with the cores we've collected and yeah so how would they go about uh analyzing that how would you i don't know much about analyzing sediment other yeah. than doing like the shaky transects that you do in marine semester yeah and sieving sieving i guess yeah sieving sieving that's um <laughs> so it depends what you want to do with them so in terms of what i do i study microfossils um so I study what are called dinoflagellate cysts. Yes. So dinoflagellates, they cause parasitic shellfish poisoning. Mm -hmm. They um, 
are bioluminescent and part of their life cycle they form this highly resistant organic cyst. It's similar to material that pollen's made out of um, and they preserve really well in the sediment. Okay. And they're very sensitive, dinoflagellates are very sensitive to changes in the water column. So temperature, salinity, light availability through like sea ice um, concentration. So if there's a lot of sea ice, they, there's no light penetration. Yeah, yeah. So they're sensitive to different parameters in the water column. Um, and they produce these cysts as part of their life cycle and they preserve in the sediment. So my job is to analyze the changes in the assemblages of different cysts because there's many different morphologies and types of cysts that you can have preserved in the sediment. Um, and I analyze them through time okay. and look at the changes in the assemblages and they can provide us information about changes oh. in temperature, salinity. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That is so cool. You definitely yeah. just saw my face, but you definitely just saw yeah, it click you, on my face. The light like, bulb went off and you just realized so how cool it was. Cool. And what's awesome is that's not the only, so we call them microfossils and yeah. we use them as what's called a proxy. So like, um, it tells us information about the water okay, um, or the sea surface, I should say. Um, but you can also analyze diatoms. Mm -hmm. um, you can analyze foraminifera. So there's benthic ones that live on like the sea floor and then planktonic ones that live in the water column. Yeah. So you can analyze those as well. Um, Coccolithophores, which are another one. Um, and yeah, they get preserved. There, there's benefits to each one and disadvantages to each, each one. So we try and use all of them to get as much information and ex extract as much information as possible. Um, but of course, there's a steep learning curve with being able to identify them taxonomically, to be able to actually analyze them. It takes a long time, um, the assemblages, I mean, and then preparation and all of that as well. They have to undergo different preparation um, in order to analyze them. But yeah, so that's kind of where my focus is. I'm looking at dinoflagellate cysts, but in my PhD, I'll probably look, be looking at some other proxies as well. That is so cool. Yeah. So does it happen? I don't know if this makes the question I'm going to ask makes sense. This is just me trying to figure it out. Yeah. So does like the do the cysts happen at different points <clears throat> in their life based on like what's happening in the water? Is that how you do it? So in general, it's when an environmental conditions are unfavorable, and we think it's a, a response to um, them. It's, it happens during sexual reproduction, and okay. it's a way of preserving like genetic diversity. So they can like go into the cyst yeah. until conditions are favorable again. Yeah. So basically okay. that forming a cyst happens within like, so dinoflagellate yeah. forms a cyst within like 10 to 20 minutes. Like it's fast. And then it sinks to the, the cyst will sink to the bottom of the water column. Yeah. Um, and the cell content will be in the cyst. And then if environmental conditions are favorable, it can exist. Um, yeah. That is mind blowing. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. So that, again, there's many things microscopically that are going on in the water column that can provide us information about past environments. So my job is looking at, as I mentioned, again, North Water Plinia. It's an area, it's the biggest plinia in the Arctic, so area of open water in a region where yeah. we see sea ice concentration. Um, and this open water sustains longer periods of primary productivity and et cetera. Yeah. And that works its way up to trophic levels and it provides refuge for large mammals and the communities rely on it and it's a very important ecosystem service. Okay. Um, a lot of people ask how does a polynia form? Because how do you get these open water conditions yeah. in an area where it's cold you would expect sea ice to just form and that would be that. Yeah. They form from both oceanic and atmospheric parameters so in the context of the north water polynia um, there's an ice bridge that helps block sea ice from flowing into the region 
so it keeps sea ice out of the region. And then there's also winds that push newly formed sea ice, because sea ice is forming in the area, away from the open water area. And then there's also um, upwelling of certain ocean water masses yeah. that are relatively warm. Relatively warm, <laughs> I say. Um, they're still quite cold compared to what we think of as warm. Yes. Um, and those three things keep this area open water conditions. So then where I come in is, how has the sea surface changed through time? Has there been increased sea ice concentration in the Polynia? Has the water been fresher? Has it been more saline? Has it been warmer? Have the conditions been more open water? And we can tell a lot of that through these proxies, through dinoflagellate That's cysts. so cool that something so small mm -hmm. can tell you such big information, yeah. such important information. Well, what people don't think about, again, is that diatoms, in the region that we're looking at, diatoms and dinocysts make up autotrophic dinoflagellates, yeah. I should say, make up most of the primary productivity. And that's crazy to think about, is mm. people think about trees and plants and seaweed and kelp <laughs> and all of that, but these microorganisms provide a lot of primary production yeah. in the oceans, isn't and people don't think about that. Isn't phytoplankton like producing like 80% of our oxygen? Something like that. Something like, something massive, and everyone's like, yep, nope, trees. Which yeah. like, trees do provide, but like, yeah. phytoplankton, my dudes. So people don't think about that, and um, yeah, they produce, they have their spring blooms and et cetera, and um, they preserve really well in the sediment, so we can analyze them, and they can provide us lots of information about what's going on through time. Yeah, what you do is so cool. It's something that people don't think about, right? Like when you think about ocean sciences, a lot of people think about like physical oceanography, so studying like ocean currents and how they've changed and how they propagate through the water column and all of that or they think of like the biological systems and yeah. we're kind of at the forefront of like both. Both, kind of. And wow. yeah, it's multidisciplinary and that's what really drew me to it and what I really like about it is that it's pulling from so many different areas. Like you're analyzing different proxies. So you're analyzing the diatoms, the dinocysts, the forams, the coccoliths if you want. You're analyzing um, changes in seabird colonies. You're analyzing human migration patterns and you're pulling that all together to get an understanding of the climatic system in Greenland and northern Canada, which contain large stores of fresh water that could impact us in the future if we continue with the Arctic sea ice decline and yes. the Greenland ice sheet decline. So it's very important. That is, like, I don't, I can't even, like, form words right now because that's so fascinating. Yeah. Wow. I did not think I was going to learn this much just sitting down in this hour. Like, I might go change my major right now. Like, Come join the research group. <laughs> I feel like, though, that's again the problem is like so many things are interesting <laughs> yeah. and it's so cool and there's so much you can do but yeah every time i talk to someone for one of these podcasts like if it's about sharks i close my laptop and i'm like man maybe i want to research sharks and then i'm like talking about man like should i do like paleoceanography i'm like it's just gonna like i, I might need to stop this because i just can't pick now yeah but i think it highlights like how much variation there is and it's really awesome to see how many people are doing such different things and then ultimately at the end how it's all interconnected yeah which is like from an earth science perspective like a lot of people don't maybe think about that but from an earth science perspective we look at things and how it's all interconnected yeah how like i don't know a volcanic eruption puts debris into the air that then blocks sunlight from coming in and how that affects the overall climate of the globe and how that would maybe be represented in dynasis assemblages in the arctic you're really good at explaining things so they like make sense because sometimes someone can tell you something and you're like what but no like everything just makes sense i wish you were my prop alter university 
Well, thank you. I, I enjoy talking about it with people because I think that communication, like one thing I'm very passionate about is scientific communication, which is why I think this podcast is incredible. I think shedding light on what people are doing and giving them the platform to talk about it in simpler terms and not like bogged down with so much jargon in academia, which can get the best of a lot of scientists. Yep. Because you do have to be very specific about what you're saying. But it's nice to have the platform to be able to explain it to the general public because the general public should understand it what's as well. The science should be for the general public almost because yeah. you're trying to figure out what's going on. And even as like a, a baby scientist like I am, when people who are above me like use this like heavy jargon, I'm like, man, like I'm almost done my degree and I don't know what you're saying. So yeah. like it's overwhelming to me. Yeah. So like for somebody that has no knowledge of this in different yeah. areas of study, it would be like but that's our role right is we have gone to school and we are now you know I'm an expert in training I'll call myself Um, I'm going through grad school I'm going to do a PhD I'm an expert in training in a specific area and that is about 12 years of school that someone who doesn't study climate science doesn't have so our job is to take our expertise and make it understandable and understandable for the general public yeah and it's kind of the same with me with like I don't know physics or business or law or whatever it might be um, that's what those professionals jobs is as well is yeah. to is to communicate it with the public and I think that right now we're in such a good time for climate science and understanding what it's about and I'm very much passionate about opening that dialogue yeah. especially between people who potentially like don't understand it or maybe don't want to understand it yeah I think it's really important to sit down and for people to ask questions and there's no stupid question I really firmly believe that like I know it's a cliche and a lot of people say it but I really am passionate about sitting down with people who are like I don't think that this is real can you explain to me why you've chosen to study it and what makes you think that it is yeah and understanding the scientific method and why the scientific method works and anyway I'm very passionate about that as well I think it's really important and something that everybody should strive to to do that is very important i'm really glad you have the patience to do it and are willing to so if you don't believe in climate change please just contact kelsey yes please please come talk to me and we can address any questions you have because you know i think after now six years of school six years of school i didn't realize it had been that long (laughs) um i've learned a lot of things that you know there's a, there's, a ra- there's a reason why things are done the way that they're done in sciences, and we have a very like specific way of analyzing things in the l- most non-biased way possible. Yeah. So, you know, it works, and it gives us a lot of information, and, you know, it's important to understand that. Absolutely. Is there anywhere people can find you or follow along with you on here if you want to share your social media or anything like that? Yeah, so I have um, Twitter, and it's at Kerner Kelsey. Um, and then that's pretty much where I post most of my stuff, like scientifically related. So people can yes. find me there. And if they want to follow me on Instagram, Kelsey Kerner. Perfect. Yeah. So if people want to know more, they just want to reach out and ask questions. That's where you can find me. Anytime. That is awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for being on my podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I love talking about ocean sciences. So this was awesome to have a fellow ocean scientist to talk to about it. It's fun to have someone that you can just sit down and just like, talk about it and you're both kind of like on the yeah. same level and with you it. get very excited and yeah it's <laughs> nice to see people light up and you know you're one of the only people that gets as excited about it as I do so I really appreciate it sometimes my excitedness is very one-sided and people are like I need you to just <laughs> calm down a little bit I will never fault you for that I think it's important to be excited and passionate and yeah I love that well thank you again thank you
Another big thank you to Kelsey for sitting down and chatting with me for the podcast. It was a lot of fun, and you guys should definitely check her out on her Twitter and her Instagram to follow along with her super cool adventures that she has in the science world. I would like to take a second and remind you to check out the Water Women website at waterwomenpodcast.weebly.com and follow along on all of our social media, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find us on all of those at the Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at the Water Women Pod. And until next time, stay salty. Thank you.